Well, good evening. Good to see everybody this evening. I want to welcome those who are with us uh, online. If you're there on Facebook or Twitter at HBC Tullahoma, uh, YouTube is Highland Baptist Tullahoma, and then our phone live streaming. Uh, just be sure to give us the thumbs up on those. Give us the hearts, the likes, the shares. Subscribe to YouTube if you want to continue to get those, and click that no little notification bell, and it'll let you know when we go live. Uh, you know, we ought to have deacon election more often. We have more people here tonight. <laughs> so, not because of deacon election, but... Uh, we are glad to have you, though, with us. So if you would, go to, your, go to the website, hollabaptistchurch.com. Uh, under the info tab, you can download the worship bulletins for today. If you need one of these in person, uh, they're in the windowsills as well as at the doors. Uh, and then don't forget, our children's worship bulletins are there also under that info tab. And if you need these in person, you can grab some over here to my right. Uh, be sure to share that with others. You can share that link with others. You can print them off, hand them out to kids in the community. It's a, just another opportunity uh, that's out there for you you to use uh, to reach out to family and their kids. And don't forget also under that info tab, you can download the prayer list there. So be sure to get that downloaded so that you can uh, pray for uh, each one of those individuals on that list throughout this week. And then also while you're on the church website, go to the far right hand side, click the give online tab there. You can do your online giving uh, there on the platform, set it up as a recurring gift, set it up as a one-time gift. You can designate however you need to do that. Anybody can do that, whether you're in person or not, you can do that on your phone. Uh, also, so I'd encourage you to take the time to do that. A lot of people uh, already uh, do that. Uh, that way it's, you, you already have that set up and you know that uh, your, your giving is going to automatically uh, take place. And then don't forget if you've not turned these in, uh, you can turn these in in the offering plate. You can put them in the box uh, on the door outside of Amy's office. Uh, these are our connection cards. If you've not gotten one, they're in the holders uh, back at this door and on the sides at this door. That way they're kind of separate from the other things uh, that are lying around. But be sure to fill out one of these. Uh, it'll give us your, make sure we have your phone numbers, your email address and such. Uh, but also because we have these uh, two, uh, this extra question on here about if you want to receive uh, the notifications about special events or special announcements, uh, we need your permission to add you to that list. And so be sure to fill that out and get that back to us as soon as you can. And that way we can uh, finish setting that up uh, online for you. Brother Mike, if you'll come and lead us in our hymn tonight. Good evening. Take your hymnals and turn to 134. Jesus paid it all. We'll sing all four verses. 
Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Ms. Rima. Take your Bibles tonight, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 38 down through verse 50. Uh, you remember this morning that Jesus has just taught this lesson uh, on humility in Matthew's gospel that we looked at, and now he teaches a lesson on leadership and what matters most. And, uh, you know, sometimes we seem to be ourselves so, so often concerned about labels more than God is, uh, titles more than God is, and the comparison of different denominations is not something uh, new. It even happened in, in Jesus' day. Uh, and we're going to see that uh, in these leadership lessons uh, tonight. But let's just begin with verse 38. Uh, as we stand, let's read God's Word in honor of His Word. So Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you would teach us once again through your word, Lord, especially if there are those who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would see the gospel message in these verses. But also, Lord, for those who have already trusted by faith in Christ, that we would see some lessons for us on leadership that we can learn uh, to lead us and guide us in anything and everything that we do, uh, whether we're in an official capacity as a leader uh, or whether we're uh, just being used by you in uh, Christian service. Father, that we would be the kind of godly person that we ought to be uh, so that you could use us in whatever way uh, that you deem, and, and deem fit in our lives. So, uh, Lord, bless your word tonight, and we just ask, Lord, for you to speak to us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. The first thing I want you to see from these verses comes actually from verse 38 down through verse 41, uh, leading by cooperation rather than competition. Uh, you know, and that's one of the things we see today, you know, we, talk, we think about, oh, the church down the street. We're not in competition with the church down the street. Uh, we're not in competition with First Baptist or Grace Baptist. We're not in competition with First Methodist or First Presbyterian. Uh, if we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, we believe in, in, in what He came and did upon the cross for our sins and that it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that we're saved, we're all in the same boat together uh, doing God's 
God's work. And so what we see in, the, in this first verse, in verse 38, is this competitive attitude even amongst uh, Jesus' disciples. We see that in verse 38. John felt guilt because we find out in that verse that he and others there had rejected a man. Uh, Jesus had just said that they were to be uh, open-armed in, in receiving uh, people in verse 37. And these words began to stir up feelings of, uh, of guilt even within John. And so he and the other disciples, they had seen this man ministering in Jesus' name, and they had stopped him. Now, what was the reason that they stopped him? Well, he gives us the reason there in verse 38. He says, he's one who does not follow us because he was not following us. Notice where the emphasis is there. It's on us. It's on us. Uh, the disciples stopped him because he was not one of them. He wasn't part of their group. Uh, he wasn't uh, part of the inner circle. Uh, and, and so John was more concerned about who was following us than who was following the Lord. And so understand this, no matter what we're serving in, whether it's in Awana or whether it's in a Sunday school class, Sunday school classes are not in competition with other Sunday school classes. We're all in God's kingdom work together. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 down through verse 56 uh, tells us uh, here, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, uh, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> I mean, think what John is, is saying there. But Jesus, it tells us in verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And so what we see there is even John's attitude towards uh, the Samaritans there was, well, you didn't accept us, you're not part of us, so Lord, do you want us to call some fire down on them? Well, there was this competitive jealousy, if you will. There was even a competitive jealousy between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus. You see it in John chapter 3 and verse 26. It says, And they came to John, John the Baptist, and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. See, here they were. They were saying, look, we had this great following here, and now everybody's running over here to Jesus, and you're losing your crowd, uh, and, and they're going to Jesus. And so we see there, even with John the Baptist, uh, his disciples were more concerned about themselves than they were Jesus. Uh, Paul, while he was in prison, uh, had some uh, come to him and say while he was in prison suffering, uh, some of his contemporaries were out there getting those who had followed him to follow them. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 18 says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He said, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my punishment. And so Paul says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
So even Paul in his ministry saw this kind of competitive attitude going on here. You know, sometimes we can be so narrow when it comes to the progress of the gospel. We find it sometimes difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. You, know, you think about and you see maybe a church in the community and they're growing and they're winning souls to Christ and it seems like, man, they're growing, why aren't we? And then we start to think about us rather than the Lord. We find it hard to rejoice when others are rejoicing. And we can weep with those who weep, but we have a hard time rejoicing with those who rejoice. You know, rejoicing in the victories of others who are doing what we do and who are doing it better than we do even, sometimes that's hard for us. And so what do we need to do? Well, we see that we need to have a Christ-like approach, a Christ-like approach. We find that in verse 39 down through verse 41. Because the first thing we see in having a Christ-like approach is we need to realize we all have the same goal. We all have the same goal. Verse 39 tells us, it says, But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And so notice this about this man. How had some, he, he had somewhere, somehow, been influenced by the Lord. And he knew about the Lord. He had a strong faith in the Lord's name. He had given himself to the ministry. He was ministering to people. In fact, he was ministering to some of the most difficult cases, to those who were demon-possessed. And so notice, ministering to the demon-possessed was the ministry which was difficult for the disciples to perform. You remember that just a few, uh, just back in the last chapter? Uh, when, when there was an individual who they couldn't cast the demon out of, they struggled because of that. And Jesus said, this one only comes out by fasting and by praying. Uh, but they had struggled because of that, because of their focus and where it was. Their focus was on themselves rather than on God and the power and the authority that he had already given them. Uh, and so we see this man, uh, he, he was doing this, and he was doing this ministry that had been difficult for them to do. He was doing it better than they were, and they were jealous of it. Understand this, there is to be no jealousy in the kingdom of God. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be just Southern Baptists that are going to be in heaven. It's not going to be just Church of God that's going to be in heaven. It's not going to be just Presbyterians or just Methodists. There's going to be a whole lot of us who have trusted by faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior who attend each one of these different denominations of churches who are going to be in heaven because we placed our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, there are several reasons why these individuals opposed others, uh, why even some today are, are, in, are not tolerant but intolerant. Uh, one is because of a sense of authority and self-exaltation uh, that can cause intolerance. We think too highly of ourselves, feeling like we're the only uh, arbiters of truth. We're the only ones who hold the truth uh, of the Word of God. And so a sense of pride and arrogance sometimes of being better than others can cause intolerance. Jealousy and envy can cause intolerance. Uh, who a person is uh, spiritually or physically or mentally, what they have, their position or their gifts or their recognition are, are often secretly desired or coveted. And, and so therefore that person uh, sometimes to us becomes uh, unacceptable. Notice this man, even though professing and ministering in the name of Jesus Christ, he was rebuked by these disciples. He was stopped even by them. 
What was he doing that was so unacceptable to them? What was he doing? Notice, uh, John sensed this guilt over this matter, and, and at least he was honest enough to confess uh, his intolerance, to ask Jesus about the matter. He didn't have to bring it up, but, but notice what Jesus said. Jesus very simply says, don't stop this man. Receive him, let him minister. Paul said it in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. He said, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean there? Anybody can say those words just saying the words in and of themselves. But they cannot say those words and mean those words and live those words in their heart and in their life. Uh, you, you go back to the Old Testament and, and you see some examples of this. You go back and you remember Moses when Moses was having difficulty managing all the people and the problems that were coming to him. And so they chose 70 elders that were appointed to help Moses. And, and if you remember back in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 11 and verse 24, here's what the Bible said there. It said, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But then notice this, but they did not continue doing it. If you don't continue doing what God has gifted you and called you to do, God will take that and, and use someone else uh, and, and allow them to receive that blessing uh, that he wanted to give to you. But notice what the scripture goes on to say. It says, now two remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, 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 you ever had your kids tattletale on the other kids? That's what this guy's doing. He's coming to tattletale on this guy, uh, who, these two guys here uh, who are serving the Lord. So this young man runs to tell Moses, Eldad and me, Dad, they're prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses stopped them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. See, Moses had the correct view there. He had a Christ-like view there uh, that Moses didn't esteem himself to say, hey, I'm the big shot around here. I'm the one who has the Spirit of God. I'm the only one who can tell people what God is saying and prophesy. He said, don't stop them. He said, I would that every single one of them uh, were out there uh, sharing God's Word. You go to the Gospels and, and you listen to how John responded when his disciples were worried about him losing his congregation. That verse we read a while ago but put in, into context here in the whole in John chapter 3 and verse 27 to verse 30. It said, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Here's what John said. He 
must increase, but I must decrease. That's one of the great characteristics of anybody serving in leadership, in Christian leadership, is that we lift Christ up and not ourselves. If you're seeking to lift yourself up to say, look at me, look at all the things I've accomplished, look at all the things I've done, then you've missed the mark. Listen to Paul's response about those who, who were using, as we read a while ago, his confinement in prison to advance their careers. That verse that we read in verse 18 where he said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So it doesn't matter where, whether they were doing it out of wrong motives, he says, or, or, or whether they were doing it in truth. The fact is Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. There was nothing being proclaimed. In other words, what he's saying, negative about the gospel, negative about Jesus Christ that was unbiblical. Uh, and, and so he was saying, in that I rejoice. And so those with a deep sense of humility are more concerned about people following Jesus than they are about people following them or their church. An example of that was seen in the 19th century uh, with Charles Spurgeon, F.B. Meyer, and G. Campbell Morgan. F.B. Meyer preached in London, England, while Charles Spurgeon was preaching there. And G. Campbell Morgan, he moved back to London and started a church that wasn't very far down the road from Meyer's. They were all great preachers, but Spurgeon's church and Morgan's church were both growing. They were bigger than Meyer's church, and he talks about that as, this in his, in his writings. He said he admitted of being a bit envious of them, and so he prayed asking God to tell him what to do because he was jealous of them, and he didn't want to be jealous. And he said somehow God instructed him to pray for both Spurgeon and Morgan, that their churches would prosper and that more and more people would come to their churches. Well, Meyer said that he didn't want to do that, but he thought that he better obey what the Lord said. And so he prayed diligently that Charles Spurgeon's church would grow, and he prayed that, that Morgan's church would grow and grow. And he said, their churches grew so much in answer to my prayers that they overflowed, and the overflow came to my church. <laughs> What, a, what an example there for us to see. Jesus, notice, notice what he says in verse 40 uh, here in, in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 9. Jesus uses the word us. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. And so Jesus was saying to his disciples, what are you worried about? We've all got the same goal. What are you worried about? Then notice he also emphasizes we serve the same God. Notice verse 41. Verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so one of the things he tells us here is that giving a cup of water in the hot country of Palestine there was a common sight. But Jesus is talking about giving because you belong to Jesus Christ or giving in his name. Many people helped. Many people gave to others. Uh, they helped and they gave because it was the common custom and the practice. It was the respectable thing to do. Uh, many times people did it because they wanted recognition and honor. That's sometimes the reasons people give today because they want recognition and honor for themselves. And notice here, the reward is promised for a specific act. The act of helping a person because I belong to Christ. 
The most important thing is uh, that, that we each know Jesus Christ. And, and so if we spent more time as believers across all denominations uh, going after the lost instead of arguing with one another, we could be reaching more lost souls for Christ. And notice the reward is given for the most simple and humble of acts, uh, the giving of water to a thirsty believer. Anyone who would give a drink of water, uh, yet so simple an act done in the name of Jesus, he says, will be greatly rewarded. I think about what we do on Fridays out here uh, with the group that meets in our parking lot to go receive food from the Nazarene Church. We partner with that Nazarene Church to let them use our parking lot. We open our facilities over here for the people to use the restrooms, and we give them water. We give them information about the gospel. We have Bibles that we could give to them, information about the church that we could give to them. So that whether they go to that church or whether they go to this church, the, the focus is, is that we want people to trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Understand this, no gift and no service that you do is too small. God sees everything. It may seem to you something insignificant in giving somebody a cup of water but what an encouragement this passage reminds us of. Then we see, secondly, about leading. Uh, another lesson to learn is leading by conviction rather than convenience. Leading by conviction rather than convenience. And so uh, notice, uh, it, as a part of that, we need to acknowledge the reality uh, of, of our influence. Uh, it, notice verse 42. He says, and this is reminding us even about some of the passage we read uh, this morning in Matthew's gospel. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and, and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus mentions the terrible sin here of offending others, that, that is of causing others to stumble, of actually leading others to sin. Jesus often calls other believers, uh, calls the believers little ones. He refers to, to the believer as a little child. A little one is any little child, uh, uh, any new believer uh, in the faith, and a person that has a childlike faith and spirit in Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here is he thinks highly of our influence on others, especially children. You know, think about, uh, as we talked about a little bit this morning, about all the fussing and arguing that had just gone on. They were arguing about who's the greatest. And you know who's seeing all that? Physical little kids. Other new believers are seeing that. And their arguing is influencing not only these little children in physical stature, but also especially these new believers. And so all of that is impacting them. You know, how often we cause people to stumble because of our words our actions, or even our lack of showing love and compassion to others. It would be better, he says, for a millstone to be hung around our neck and cast into the sea than to lead another person into sin. Because they see you doing it. You know, we can tell our kids, do this, do that, but they see mom and dad doing something. Uh, well, you do it, so I can do it. And it's the same thing spiritually also. New believers see us doing things, acting certain ways, and they think, oh, well, that's the normal way that a, a Christian's supposed to act. Notice also in, in leading by conviction rather than convenience, we need to see that we need to accept the responsibility for our influence. Notice verse 43. He says, 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, and it is better for you to enter life lame uh, with two feet uh, to be thrown into hell, uh, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so in those few verses there, we see uh, this issue about our hand and our, our foot and our eye. Those are all symbolic of our entire self. And this is some strong, strong, strong language uh, that's very descriptive and, and radical in its point. Because honesty and, and thought are, are called for in seeing the point of Christ. Now, it may sound gross here in what he's saying. Pluck your eyeball out sever that arm off, cut your foot. I mean, that is, that's a horrible descriptive picture to have, and, and it's very radical in its point, and it may seem gross to us, but dying in your sin or, or living in eternal life, those two things hang in the balance. Which one is more important? It, what's more horrible than taking one's hand and leading a little one to sin and being a stumbling block to his life and salvation? Which one's the worse? What's more horrible uh, than dooming him to, to what Christ calls hell fire? What's more horrible than dooming uh, the, the same, uh, than doing the same with oneself? You know, if God really loves us and hell fire is real, then this kind of descriptive language uh, is, is radical and even needed to awaken us to the truth uh, of the gospel. Hell is punishment, and it is forever. And that's the point he's wanting to make here. Take it seriously. What you do, what you say, the way you act can have an eternal difference in someone else's life. And he says it'd be better for you to get rid of those things in your life than for you to lead someone by your actions or your words or the things you say or do to lead them to a life in hell. He says here's another point about leading and leadership that we need to learn is we need to lead by courage rather than cowardice. And we see this in verse 49 and verse 50. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, you think back to those days, every sacrifice had salt. And so it speaks to the seriousness of following Christ. He's the Christ of the crown, but he's also the Christ of the cross. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to face some challenges because this Christian journey for us even leads to the cross. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you're it's going to lead to the cross. Jesus is coming down. You remember, uh, he had just come down from the, from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's coming down, and the journey is leading him closer to the cross. We want the crown, but not the cross. We want to reign with him, but we don't want to suffer with him. Jesus went to the cross. The question is, are we willing to go with him? 
So that's what makes a, a salty Christian. The, the wonderful challenge is to save ourselves from sin. Salt is good. Salt is beneficial. Salt is useful. And, and Jesus said there are some things that are necessary to save yourself from the terribleness of sin. He says, search yourself. Examine yourself. Look at the things you're doing. Is your life a salty life? Is your life pure? Is it useful? He says, be sure to be salted, to have salt. You have to be pure and to be useful. And then he says, live in peace one with another. Those are essential things. When I read this verse and when I read this verse, and for you in reading this verse, it ought to bring back to you the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus speaks these very same words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 13. And so I want to take us there and spend the rest of our time there in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, which is what he was saying here, has lost its usefulness, uh, he says, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what do you think the greatest threat to, to Christianity is today? Is it Islam that seems to be on the rise? Do you think it's an increasing hostility toward Christianity and even the church? Uh, do you think it's what appears to be uh, the increasing secularization of our culture? Uh, do you believe it's the fact that more and more people seem to be more and more tolerant of things that, that the church has been intolerant of in its history? None of those things are the greatest threat to the church. A great British preacher named James Stewart said it best when he said this, the greatest threat to Christianity is not communism, it's not atheism, it's not materialism, it's not humanism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, without ever living out the Christian life, without ever becoming involved in the most significant work God is doing on planet Earth. Jesus was by far and away the greatest influential person, the greatest leader and example for us in leading who ever lived. I mean, you think about Socrates who, who taught for 40 years. You think about Plato for 50 years, Aristotle for 40, and yet Jesus for only three years of his ministry. And yet who can dispute that the influence of Jesus Christ for three years is far greater than the combined 130 years of some of the greatest philosophers and thinkers who ever lived? Jesus never painted a picture, but some of the finest paintings of some of the finest, from some of the finest artists in history painted him. He never wrote any poetry, but some of the greatest poets uh, in all of history had their greatest works inspired by him. He never composed any music, but from Beethoven to Bach, some of the greatest symphonies and musical works ever written were about him. And so just like Jesus used his influence to, to accomplish the greatest work in the history of the world, which is bringing people to God, he wants us to be involved in that same work. And so when Jesus says this about salt in Mark 9, 49 to 50, it, it, we ought to be reminded, as we said of the Sermon on the Mount, where he said that in verse 13. In the Sermon on the Mount there, Jesus tells us the simple secret 
for how to be a person of influence, a godly leader that can make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Now, we're not going to focus on the second one because he tells us two there. One is about salt, one is about light. We want to focus on salt because that's what he was speaking about in Mark's gospel. And so, uh, we find out that, that before you, you start thinking you could ever be a person of influence like he was, remember who he was and remember to who he was speaking. Think about this. He wasn't in Athens speaking to some brilliant philosophers. He wasn't in Rome speaking to military generals. He wasn't speaking to the United Nations. He wasn't speaking to Congress or, or some parliament. He was speaking on a hillside in a rural area. He had just come down from, from uh, the mountain. He, he had come from Caesarea Philippi. He would come down to Galilee uh, there. Uh, he was in that rural area known as Galilee. The people in that crowd were probably about as low a class of people as you could find uh, socioeconomically in, in that day and that time. Wealthy people in Jerusalem looked down on the country people of Galilee. And, and it was in that crowd, in that setting, that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Thousands of people looked at him in amazement, and in their hearts they were saying, you talking to me? You talking to me? I'm the salt of the earth? What are you talking about? He was talking to them. And because enough of them took him seriously and became salt and light, Christianity is now on every continent on the planet, and we're here today because of their faithfulness. Jesus Christ changed this world. Nobody he truly touched was ever the same. And so if we follow Jesus... We can change our world to be godly leaders, the godly leaders that he's called us to be. And those that we reach out and truly touch by the grace and the power of God, their lives will never be the same. And so Jesus tells us one simple thing here we want to look at that we ought to do every day to be the godly leader that he wants us to be, to be a person who influences others. Here it is, the final thing I want you to see, leading by confirming rather than contradicting. Live what you say and say what you live. In other words, show a godly life to others. That's what verse 13 is talking about there. And so Jesus begins with this incredible statement and says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? He says, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. So, so why does Jesus refer to his followers as salt? Well, salt is a, is a miracle because it's sodium and chloride. Think about that. Sodium in and of itself in large quantities can shut your kidneys down and kill you. Long-term exposure to chlorine can cause respiratory failure. But you take and add sodium to just enough chloride and you have salt, which is one of the most useful substances on the face of the planet. It was even more valuable and useful in Jesus' day. What we take for granted was like pure gold back then. Uh, salt is a preservative. 2,000 years ago, people didn't have refrigeration like we do today. So salt was valuable. It was so valuable that you could often trade it uh, ounce for ounce with gold. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And in a way, we are too. The word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which comes from the root word sal or salt. That's what we say when we mean, mean when we say he's not worth his 
salt. One of the major industries of Galilee was fishing. You think about, have you ever seen those fishing shows, those crab shows where they're catching uh, the deadliest cats and all those things? If you're ever watching, you'll notice when they're catching those things, they're putting them in a holding tank. And what do they put on them? Ice. Or they put salt. They don't put ice because the ice would melt in the, in the heat in the summer, but they put salt. Fishermen understood the value uh, of salt. Uh, and, and so salt is a preservative and a preventative. It prevents decay, it prevents corruption, and when those fishermen caught fish, the only way that they could keep them fresh and take them to the market was to take, as they caught them in their boat, cover them with salt. Otherwise the fish would rot and they would smell and become useless. You think about where they are, they're in that hot, arid climate. They're in Galilee, out on the Sea of Galilee. And so it's very hot there, and so that's the only thing they had was salt to put on them. One of the ways you become a godly leader, a person of influence, is just by allowing your life to be sprinkled out like salt. Do you know what salt tastes like? I'm already tasting it on my lips. Just thinking about it. It's salty. There's really not another word you can use to describe how salt tastes. Uh, there's nothing quite like salt. You go into any restaurant, you sit down, you eat a meal, nobody has to tell you if the food's too salty. Uh, here's the point Jesus was making. When you're with other people, they should taste the godly difference in your life. That's what being a godly leader is all about. So understand this. He didn't say uh, you are the salt of the church. He said, you're the salt of the earth. The church doesn't exist for itself. The purpose of salt is to get out and into the food. You can take the best table salt in the world, and if all you do is take and put it one centimeter away from the food, it's useless. It's of no good until you put it on the food. And so we can't be the salt of the earth in here. Jesus says we're to be the salt of the earth out there. In the world, salt is worthless if it's never put on that food. It may look nice in the shaker, but if it never gets out of the shaker, it's worthless. So get this picture in your mind. The church is the salt shaker, and you are the salt. And we shouldn't just, uh, shouldn't just walk out of here. We ought to be poured out of here, it, whether it's in our schools or, or in our businesses or our offices or our neighborhoods or, or on our athletic teams or uh, wherever we might go to let people taste the difference that Jesus has made in our life. That begs the question, has Jesus made a difference in your life then? We have to get out of our churches and out of our houses and out of our holy huddles, out of the small groups and, and begin to show a godly life to our, to our next door neighbors and to the people that work under us or, or work above us or, or to our schoolmates or, or, or to our teammates or to our relatives or to our friends. And, and notice he goes on to give this warning in verse 13. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The same morning as Mark's gospel that we read a while ago. It's impossible for salt to become unsalty. Sodium chloride is one of the most stable compounds in the chemical world. But again, if you had lived back then, you would have known what Jesus meant. Uh, you think about this, one of the most famous seas in the world there is... The Dead Sea. You have the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea was even uh, more famous. In, in Jesus' day, people got much of their salt 
from the Dead Sea. You can even go there today and you can see structures that, that because of the water is receding uh, where it's left, salt deposits that make these beautiful uh, images out of, out of salt that are stacked up on one another, these kind of uh, art, art looking objects. Uh, but here at, at the Dead Sea, at the Dead Sea, there's more salt concentrated there than any other place on the face of this earth. You can go out in the Dead Sea and, and swim in the Dead Sea, and you're just going to float on top. There's that much salt. You think you, you swim in a lake here and you start going under, it's not like that in the Dead Sea, not at all. If you've ever had any problems swimming, that's the place to go to swim <laughs> because you're going to float uh, automatically on the top because of the salt content that's there. Once the water flows into the Dead Sea from the Jordan River and other places, there's no place for it to go. And so the sun begins to evaporate the water and it leaves behind clunky white powder made up of a combination of salt and minerals. There's enough salt in it to preserve meat, but there's also enough minerals to dilute the salty flavor and make it basically tasteless. It's really bitter. You know, the only thing that salt was good for in that state was to put it on the roads to hold down the dust. It became something that people just walked over. Christianity, when it loses its flavor and the church loses its attractiveness, it loses that when we begin to live like everybody else. Christianity loses its flavor and the church loses its attractiveness when we're more interested in conforming to the culture than transforming the culture. Christianity loses its flavor when we go along to get along. Followers of Jesus will never make followers of Jesus until we look a lot more like Jesus. See, people know when food is salted and they know when it's not. And when they look at your life, they see whether you're salty or whether you're not. What do we mean there? They know and they can see, well, that person's living like what I've heard Jesus is like. They see it in your characteristics. They see it in the way that you live. You know, people know when food is salted, when it's not. People should know by the way we live whether we're followers of Jesus or not. We have to show a godly life to others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to talk about how we're to be the light of the world also. But then Jesus concludes by saying this in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, in the same way, let your light shine, and I would add there, and be salt before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father also who is in heaven. So Jesus tells us something here that's so important. How are we to know if we're being salt? How are we to know, if you read the rest of that, how we're to be light? Uh, how do we know if we're really shaking the salt and really shining the light? How do we know if we're really being the godly leader that he's called us to be? Here's the test. If others see your good works and they don't say what a good person you are, but they say what a great God that person knows. There was a little boy who went up to his daddy one time and said, Daddy, how tall am I? He said, Son, I don't know. I guess about four feet. He said, well, Daddy, how tall is Jesus? And his dad said, son, I don't know, but I would guess, you know, being from that culture and that place, maybe it's about five and a half feet. He said, so, so the little boy said, I'm four feet tall, and he's five and a half feet tall. And dad said, so? And he said, Dad, if Jesus is in me, he'll stick out, won't he? 
He will. He will shake out of you like salt, and he'll shine out of you like light. When we first moved to Tennessee, we were in the Alcoa area, uh, Maryville area there, and I, uh, I, I got a job at Sears at the Foothills Mall in Maryville there. Uh, most of the people I worked with there were, were not Christians, and the supervisor who hired me there at Sears, uh, her, her name was Janine. Uh, I found out later that the only reason she really hired me was because the HR supervisor ha had told her, you won't hire him because he's a preacher. And so Janine, she hired me out of spite uh, to the HR supervisor. But me and her became friends. Uh, while we were working, uh, we would talk about life, talk about the struggles that she was facing, and uh, wh while we were, uh, uh, the struggles she was facing, and she would ask uh, questions about the Bible sometimes, and sometimes I wouldn't know the answer, sometimes I would, but I would always try to find out the answer and get back to her, and, and, and I, I would try to witness to her, but I, I never really got anywhere. Uh, I invited her to church but she would always make excuses why she couldn't come to church. She didn't have clothes to wear to church. She wasn't a good time for her. But for the four years that I worked there, uh, I worked there for four years, and, and uh, just by the way I walked and the way I talked, I just kept trying to be salt and light. And then one day something unexpected from her past came back to haunt her. She asked me to go outside and sit with her again on the steps outside the loading dock during her lunch break. And, and she began to tell me what happened. She used to live in Arizona. Uh, she worked, and she's okay with me telling this because I, um, we've shared this testimony and she shared this testimony before. But she lived in Arizona and she had worked for a company that she had embezzled some money from. And she had spent some time in prison there in Arizona. And uh, she had made a profession of faith to Christ uh, while she was in prison through the Gideon ministry uh, who came and shared the gospel with her. But she really wasn't sure if it was genuine and she had gotten out. She had moved to Tennessee, uh, but she still had to make restitution for what she had stolen. And she had, she had always uh, made her visits with her parole officer. She had uh, kept her payments up to date, but something had happened and she had gotten behind and now they were going to prosecute her. The icing on the cake is she had lied on her applications when she applied at, at Sears and no one there knew about it, not her HR supervisor, uh, not even the store manager. And she knew if they knew she would probably get fired. And on top of that, she also began to tell me that before she had been put in prison, she had been married. She had two children that her ex-husband's mother had custody of uh, and they were getting into their teenage years and they wanted to meet her. Uh, but she felt that she just wasn't where she needed to be uh, in her life, and she wasn't sure what to do. She felt like everything was crashing in around her. She might lose her job. She'd never get to meet her kids, and even though she was scared of doing that. And so there we were. We were sitting on the steps outside the loading dock, and the Lord just began to work as I just sat there mostly and listened. Uh, and, and shared Christ with her and it was, she knew that it was time to get things right with the Lord and so she prayed there on those steps and surrendered her life to Jesus and was baptized later. Uh, through leading her to Christ and our witness and her witness to others even there, by the time we left, I left from there to go on up to Elizabeth and uh, working for the children's home and then eventually to the church up there, uh, more than half the people that we worked with had either become Christians or recommitted themselves to the Lord. Looking back on it, it wasn't anything I really said. It wasn't any argument that I made. It wasn't any pressure that I put on her or, or anything like that. It was just that at every opportunity, I would try to shake the salt and shine the light. 
You know, if we're truly going to be followers of Jesus, we have to value others the way Jesus values them. Uh, we have to connect with others the way Jesus connects with them. We have to serve others the way Jesus served others. And we need to lead and to influence others the way Jesus led and influenced others. We have to become more intentional and do everything we can to become salt and even light where we are. So understand this, if you're here tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know why? It's because somebody was salt in your life. It's because somebody was light in your life. Don't keep the salt that you have in the shaker. Doesn't do any good. You see, through Jesus Christ, we can be people of influence who make this world far better and far brighter than it ever would have been without us. If you're here, though, and you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you need to understand this. You cannot be salt. You cannot be the leader you need to be or the light that you need to be until you accept the one who poured the salt into you. You're either the salt of the earth or you're part of the earth that needs to be salted. And so come to Jesus, the one who died on the cross. If you are here as a believer, be the leader God wants you to be. Whether it's in your home, whether it's in the community, whether it's in the church, be the salt in somebody's life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your truth tonight. And Lord, I don't know what that maybe had to say to someone, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would use it as a word of encouragement to each and every one of us, Lord, to be intentional, to be faithful, to be committed, Lord, that we live what we say so that we're not hypocritical in our lives, so we're not presenting uh, something that's uh, a compromise of, uh, of our faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be uh, faithful in that walk with you. And Lord, that you would uh, draw us ever closer to you to be more like Christ. And the more we're closer to Christ, I pray, Lord, the more the world will see Christ in us. Lord, I pray that, that if there's any ounce of jealousy in our hearts, maybe for some other group. Lord, I know sometimes, even within churches, cliques form, groups form. We become jealous over this group or jealous over that group. Or maybe we're jealous over this church or, or that church. Or we're jealous over what, God, what you're doing over here or what you're doing over there. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be faithful right where we are. And that if we will do that and be the leaders you've called us to be, and if we'll be the salt in the world that you've called us to be, then Lord, you will do a great and mighty work in and through us that we can't even comprehend or imagine. Help us, Lord to be the salt, because we can't do it without you. You've poured the salt into us. You've poured the light into us. Lord, let it overflow out of us to the world around us. Help us to be the salt of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand and sing our hymn of invitation, number 275, I Surrender All, will you make your way and come? If you're there online, be sure to comment any decisions that you make. Brother Mike, if you will.
Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us there online. We look forward to seeing you Wednesday night. We'll be back in the book of Revelation there again. I encourage you to join us. You're going to receive a wonderful blessing uh, from the next passage that we're going into. There's always a blessing there in the book of Revelation. If you're here in person and you have not put that deacon ballot in, do it quickly because the deacons will be counting those here in just a moment. But thank you for joining us. You have a blessed week, and we'll see you this coming Wednesday.